Do you defend uh, the, the N-word, Atticus? I asked him that evening. Of course I do. Don't say the N-word, Scout. That's common. That's what everybody at school says. From now on, it'll be everybody less one. Well, if you don't want me to grow up talking that way, why do you send me to school? This is a quote from Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the most controversial books out there in terms of schools wrangling with whether or not it should be mandatory reading or banned from curriculum. What's very interesting about it is that a conversation that was relevant at the dinner table in the 1930s is relevant all over again in the 2020s. It seems like an enduring issue that dads get asked stupid questions by their kids. <laughs> yeah. And as our understanding of identity, uh, racism, and inequality has advanced, we're coming to consensus on many things that should be unacceptable. But things being unacceptable doesn't mean that they don't exist. And being informed to historical context does better help us understand and deal with issues of today. That being said, there probably is a better way of teaching children than making little Black American boys and girls come face-to-face with the N-word in the sixth grade. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was actually a difficult decision, but there is a part of me that thinks when when reading a quote of a book that has the N-word written in it, it should be read out. That's the act, That's what the book says. That's the historical context. And whitewashing it or censoring it denies maybe where the history of our country came from. And there's the other side of the coin where people believe, and maybe I believe it too, you can have a full and comprehensive discussion about race and bias in this country without using language that offends people like that. Mm-hmm. Well, these ideas have become hyper-focused and centered recently around the concept of critical race theory and predominantly the question of whether or not it, like some of these books, uh, like some of this language, should be included in our schools. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Previously, we did what we called an adjudication episode on the public discourse surrounding gun control. On today's episode, we're going to be utilizing a lot of the same methodology as we plan on not only examining critical race theory itself, but also a lot of the narrative that exists in regards to it out in the media. I think a good place to start, as usual, is by examining what critical race theory is. And in a lot of episodes, this is where we give a quick definition just to bring people who may be unfamiliar with that week's subject matter up to speed and then move on. But in this case, the definition of critical race theory is where a lot of the controversy lies. The first area where we need to focus is actually clarifying the difference between what critical race theory or CRT is and what people assume critical race theory is. It was originally developed through legal scholarship in the late 20th century, and CRT is a concept that aims to explain how discrimination and inequity are woven into laws, policies, and systems. Thus, the doctrine states, racism is perpetuated in American culture. 
The theory argues that racism goes beyond individual prejudice and is an ingrained component of American society. Derek Bell began authorship of this concept in the 1970s in the focus of legal scholarship, and it seeks to answer the question of why did racism and inequity persist after the civil rights movement? In general, I think that there's five tenets of CRT in education, and the ones that we've chosen here are as phrased by Rita Coley in Race, Ethnicity, and Education. One is the centrality and intersectionality of race and racism. Two is the challenge to dominant ideology. Three is the commitment to social justice. Four, the centrality of experiential knowledge. And five, the interdisciplinary perspective. So let's go ahead and go through those things and look at exactly what all those big words mean one by one, starting with the centrality and intersectionality of race and racism. Right. According to CRT, race is a social construct, not biological. It states that racism is a normal part of society and embedded into institutions and systems. The systems allow the continuation of racial inequity, not individual people. The intersectionality of race with other forms of oppression, such as gender or class, is indispensable. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note here that when it says the systems allow the continuation of racial inequity, not individual people, it's not saying that there aren't individually racist people out there. But even if nobody was individually racist, there would still be inequity because of the construction of the various systems that make up society. Mm-hmm. I think this pertains very, very closely with the the basis of CRT being written as a legal analysis. There are so many elements of our legal system that definitely have either a racial basis or a perpetuation of racial issues that even if everybody who operates within the legal system is not racist, the system itself forces racist conclusions because of how it was constructed. Mm -hmm. This idea that there's intersectionality of race with other forms of oppression, I I think is just true. But one of the issues that people have that I think is fair is that critical race theory seems to place race above some of the other identities. So rather, race existing alongside gender or class, uh, I think a lot of times uh, it would suggest that race is a more defining characteristic than those other two, or the various other types of identities that make up each of us. Hmm. That might be because a lot of people have an idea of race as being an observable thing. You can much more easily guess at someone's race than you can class for sure. And in some cases, gender as well. But it's interesting. So so when you you bring up the legal system, for example, and obviously there's many examples of where the legal system does discriminate systemically against races, but a lot of it is straight up class warfare as well. Things like bail, for example, the parole system, uh, even speeding tickets. The way that speeding tickets assign flat punishments, if you're driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, you are going to pay X amount regardless of your class. It's a very regressive system that punishes poor people significantly more than it punishes rich people for the same crime. That is true. However, a lot of the people who are getting brought into those systems in the first place are brought into it because of race. A lot of Black neighborhoods are over-policed. More Black people are pulled over for speeding than white people are. 
etc. So it's understandable why race would be the first thing that is considered when we're looking at this concept, even though it will interact with class and gender and other defining characteristics, because race is the primary basis for a lot of the things that then turn into discriminatory actions against certain classes of people. So one thing that we're going to talk about, I think, a lot through this episode, and the reason we're spending so much time with the definition of critical race theory is because, especially as it pertains to being taught in schools, which we'll get to later, but even just in public discourse in general, if we don't have clear definitions on what it is, it's hard to evaluate how useful or damaging it is to society at large. And so this particular tenant, as well as some of the other ones we're about to discuss, certainly has a lot of value to it. But also there's a line at which I think it potentially takes things too far and asserts as truth something that might not be. Where that line is, is where the debate should be, I suppose. I'm sure we'll figure out exactly where that line should be because we as white people are definitely the ultimate source on how to handle race relations in this country. Mm -hmm. I have no implicit biases whatsoever. So number two, (laughs) that being said, number two is the challenge to dominant ideology. Critical race theory states that the dominant ideology in the United States intentionally left out the voices of people of color. This is an interesting discussion because I feel that a lot of people in our generation and younger generations brought up in a system which clearly has racial bias built into it came by it honestly. None of us actually deliberately excluded people from discussions. It was already Mm -hmm. like that before we got here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that word intentionally is where the issue with this particular tenant of critical race theory might lie. Certainly, there was a period of our history moving into coming out of the Civil War where people of color were intentionally left out of the system. And then we haven't had a period of our history where we've made a conscious and intentional effort to go and weed out all of those tenets of democracy, for example, education, the criminal justice system. So, does the culmination of those facts and does the culmination of that history? mean that we still intentionally leave out the voices of people of color? Not sure. There are plenty of people who believe that the continual participation in a system which was built without the consideration of people of color is a perpetuation, an intentional perpetuation of the exclusion of people of color. I know another issue that is happening right now and is certainly intentional. And we said previously we were going to do an episode on it. So we are still going to do an episode on it, would be gerrymandering. A lot of districts are gerrymandered to highlight certain demographics and give them more voice in our democracy and to minimize the voices of other people. Exactly. So that's modern and intentional. (laughs) Absolutely. On both counts. Mm -hmm. Well, the third criteria or component of critical race theory is the commitment to social justice. CRT prioritizes equity by removing privilege and providing opportunity across racial lines. Yeah, that sounds great. We'll talk about this later, but I think the question that it begs is how, right? This theoretical, let's nobody be racist. All right, I don't have a problem with that. 
But the issue comes in exactly how do we legislate and how do we pursue that goal? There's a big bag of opportunity and Santa goes around the world very quickly and he hands it out to people and that's going to solve the problem. So speaking of systems of inequity, certain (laughs) people of certain demographics are less likely to have homes that have fireplaces and therefore not chimneys. And so those people are less likely to receive gifts from Santa. Critical race theory in action. Or the kids who all got things from Santa, but Santa liked one house Xbox level and Santa liked the other house match car. I just got socks. You just got socks from Santa? Mm -hmm. You must have been a bad kid. (laughs) I just, uh, it was systems of inequity. All right. Number four, the centrality of experiential knowledge. CRT recognizes the scholarly relevance of people of color's lived experiences. Because their voices are left out of the dominant ideology, experiential knowledge is often the only source available. And this one, I I think, is a little bit problematic because there's already criticism of social, quote unquote, sciences and the lack of their resemblance to actual science. And so this idea of lived experiences being the thing upon which we try to develop academia or policy, for example, um, there's an issue when anecdotal evidence is what we're drawing our conclusions from. Now, th- that being said, lived experiences are a thing. Experiential knowledge is a thing. But how do we balance that out with a lack of, say, raw data or quote unquote facts about the world when we're trying to construct realities in a university or in a legislature? There's also a question of how granular you get with this because everybody's got a different lived experience. So even in systems where they are trying to take into consideration collectively people of color's lived experience, the diversity of those different lived experiences mean that some people will be overrepresented and some people will be underrepresented, even in the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's weaponized pretty often, I think, also, if you look to Uh, A Trump rally, for example, where they'll have Latinos for Trump with their big signs, you know, behind him as he's giving a speech and point to that and say, well, these people and their experiential knowledge or their lived experiences have led them to support this guy. Um, And certainly I'm not saying that people whose political opinions fall outside of the norm for their demographic are invalid, but... (laughs) the realist in me thinks that some of those might not be completely authentic. And then there's the extrapolation. Well, if there are Black people who support Donald Trump, clearly he must not be an enemy of of racial minorities in this country. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, if something like critical race theory is trying to prioritize the relevance of people's lived experiences, you can't really complain about that. So it's a a bit of a double-edged sword. Well, I can find a way to complain about anything. Well, that's true, but doesn't mean you're legitimate. Mean. (laughs) You're legitimate. Your opinion might not be. Okay, fair. (laughs) Finally, the fifth component here is the interdisciplinary perspective. CRT acknowledges that nothing exists in a vacuum. It's essential to look at things from multiple contexts to get as full a story as possible. I don't think we can say too much about this. This seems pretty reasonable and sound. 
Yeah, this is pretty straightforward, but sort of similar to uh, what tenant number three, let's try to remove privilege and provide opportunity. It's like, yeah, that sounds great. But when it comes time to put it into place, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's where the difficulty lies. In principle, this seems cool with me. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Sure. So if those are the five components of the real definition of critical race theory, which Kelly and I have now given to you, so you are equipped to deal with the fake definitions of critical race theory that you'll deal with in the media, (laughs) the question is, does that actual definition matter if it's not what's being discussed in the country? We researched this thing. I don't think that I've ever heard any of these tenants in the media. When Ben Shapiro debates whoever about critical race theory on Bill Maher's show, this is not what's being talked about by either side. Well, of course it isn't because it's lengthy and it requires some actual research and understanding of what all of those concepts actually mean. It's not a soundbite. It's not easy to digest. What is easy to digest is all of the hyperbole that has come about in the CRT discussion. And this is where we get a little bit into the adjudication aspect of the episode, right? Here, we're trying to provide for you a bit about the legitimate theory behind critical race theory, a legitimate discussion, but also take a look at some of what is talked about, whether those arguments are legit or not, and have a discussion about where they hold up to scrutiny or where they fall flat. Even if what is actually being discussed is not the true nature of what CRT entails, it is the basis for a lot of decisions that are happening with all of the people who are all hot and bothered about what they think CRT is. So it is important to actually have the conversation about how it's being interpreted and utilized in the public realm. Yeah, and you use the word hyperbole, and I think that's probably the best way to describe it, because according to if you watch any news show, what critical race theory means is every white person is inherently racist. That's not true. Well, actually, it's funny you say it as a joke. I think that's a criticism of both sides because I think on the right, people use that to galvanize their base against critical race theory that, hey, if your child, if we're talking about schools, is being taught critical race theory, they're being taught that every white person is inherently racist. But at the same time, to be fair, there are a lot of people on the left that take the tenets that we just laid out and take them a bit further and do come to the conclusion that every white person is inherently racist, at least implicitly racist. And that is where the conversation requires a lot more nuance than like Sean Hannity or whoever is going to give it. Technically speaking, because race is based off of systems of power, even if people do not carry bias with them, white people benefit from a racist system and therefore are complicit in it, therefore making them racist. And that's a nuanced discussion that nobody wants to have. That's because you use big words like implicit and complicit and all the other isits. All I hear there is white people racist. Hear what you want to hear. Watch Fox News. I think that the challenge here, though, is at the same time that Fox News, as the example, is making these statements, there are certainly extremes on the other side that are giving them the material they need, the sound bites, whatever, to make that material seem legitimate. 
to make it seem as though that's actually what something like critical race theory is. So both sides are doing themselves, I think, a disservice by hyperbolizing the issue. If only there was a venue to find a more nuanced discussion, perhaps a podcast where people research and talk about these things and explain them to everybody. Hmm. Indubitably. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's move on to where this controversy is probably most relevant, at least in today's discourse in the United States, which is not necessarily is critical race theory accurate or not, but should critical race theory be taught in schools? 37 states have passed legislation limiting the inclusion of critical race theory in school, or at the very least, how teachers are allowed to talk about racism in schools. This discussion is even recently being introduced into the confirmation hearings of Katanji Brown Jackson for the Supreme Court. Do we have a episode on that? You know, it's ringing a bell. <laughs> so check that out. Ted Cruz, in his interrogation of Katanji Brown Jackson, brought up the book Anti-Racist Baby, which is being used in uh, the pre-K to second grade curriculum in certain school districts. That book suggests things such as babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist, there's no neutrality, or babies should, quote, confess when being racist. Yeah, and I think uh, to, to give you a quick plug, you did ask in our Supreme Court episode You said, I wonder what kind of questions Katanji Brown-Jackson will be asked that other nominees were likely not asked. And I think being asked about (laughs) anti-racist baby book, given that she, I'm not sure why he chose Katanji Brown-Jackson as the nominee he would ask about that book. Hmm. But uh, the choice of those questions, let's be real, kind of proves critical race theory is true. And it proves that I'm a psychic. <laughs> it, it is an example, I think, of systemic. And even if Ted Cruz, not somebody that I'm typically going to give the benefit of the doubt, but let's just say that we do, even if we give him the benefit of the doubt, it's at least an example of implicit racism. Ted Cruz has been part of the nomination processes for Merrick Garland, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett. And it's Katanji Brown-Jackson that he's chosen to ask these kinds of questions to. Hmm. Wonder why that is. Because he's a dick. (laughs) So, see? Nothing to do with race. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let's examine this idea of critical race theory being taught in school. One of the arguments, I think probably at the most basic level, uh, the argument for its inclusion in education is that it would foster empathy. As we said earlier, if racism is experiential, then little white kids probably don't have a sense of of what racism is, what it feels like to be the victim of it. And teaching it in school helps set at least an academic foundation to help them understand what their classmates of different colors might go through. Or even if it's kids in different school districts that you don't really interact with until adulthood, um, it breeds a bit of empathy and a bit of understanding. Yeah, and gives people a sense of where their privilege is, what things might actually constitute privilege, since the dominant narrative around it is everybody's giving people favors type of thing, rather than there are fewer barriers for me type of thing. 
based upon what people perceive my race to be. These are tough discussions to have. I think one of the criticisms, or even if it's not a criticism, one of the challenges that critical race theory has to wrestle with is at what age are people capable of understanding and internalizing some of these concepts? Uh, We mentioned the book, Anti-Racist Baby, that Ted Cruz brings up, and that was being used in a pre-K through second grade curriculum, which, you know, seems a bit early to me, not to be on his side, but what age is it acceptable or what age are people just capable, have the critical thinking skills necessary to comprehend something like critical race theory? Well, you adjust the curriculum to work with the education level and mental capabilities of the children in question. You don't sit a child down and have them read like MLK's letter from prison, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you you have to give them things that actually operate at the, at the level that they're going to be able to understand. And that book seems to be written for children of that age group. Mm-hmm. So there's that question of capacity, but even if kids are capable of understanding it, still doesn't necessarily mean we should or should not be teaching it to them. Even if educators are not teaching critical race theory itself, there's a lot of people out there that would be more comfortable with a quote unquote, colorblind education, treating all students equally, regardless of race and not calling out races or differences in a classroom, right? If young children have not formulated ideas about difference and the hierarchies that are tied to differences, they may get a chance to develop without bias if they're never exposed to bias or educated in a way that such a thing as bias exists. That's interesting in the sense that once you call out that a child may have privilege, that could confer some sort of specialness to them that might be giving them an unearned sense of superiority over their classmates. Privilege has the actual word privilege confers something as good. Like I have privileges from my parents. If I have privileges due to my race. That also means there are good things about me because of who I am and my skin color. And that could be. A very difficult conversation to have with children who are just learning language and these sorts of concepts. That could certainly be true. I also could see it taken the other way, where kids have a sense of guilt that, oh my gosh, you know, I've benefited and I've been given these things and other people haven't, and I don't actually deserve them. So I've done something wrong. I'm a bad person and I didn't even realize it. And then there are the children who don't have the privilege, who maybe didn't realize they didn't have the privilege until confronted with this education, and then walking out of a classroom realizing that the world sees them as less than. Mm -hmm. They didn't walk into the classroom that way. That can be very shattering to one's self-identity. At what age are we prepared to have kids face these uncomfortable truths? Yeah. So even if we're able to word these concepts or communicate these concepts in a way that the kids can understand, I don't think there's a universal way that they would be received. And I think that it's a fair argument to think that in some cases, again, at younger ages, in some cases, it it could be as damaging as rewarding in other cases. The other thing I think that's interesting about that criticism is the idea of colorblindness. And I know that in liberal circles, 
the idea that it's possible to be colorblind is pretty much just treated as a meme now. But I'm not convinced that it is impossible to raise children in an environment where they don't develop biases, as opposed to what anti-racist baby suggests, that babies are either taught to be racist or anti-racist and there is no neutrality. I'm not sure I buy that. To claim that as truth and then teach it, I think might be problematic. I think that could be a future state once racist systems have been effectively deconstructed and there actually are no power imbalances, nothing racist exists in the legal system. All of those systems are just totally equalized, right? Mm -hmm. Then it becomes like Zion in the matrix and people of all colors just dance together a lot underground. It'll be, it'll be great. (laughs) But you're again, you're talking about, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that there aren't implicit biases or structural biases, but the idea that it's impossible to be colorblind is is certainly something that's been taken up as a truth in certain communities. And there's a lot of people that disagree with that. And if that's something that's not settled, is it a good idea to be teaching one or the other to kids, especially under a certain age? Not sure. Whether or not we can come to an agreement on the potential for a colorblind society, there are further arguments in favor of keeping CRT in classrooms. CRT argues that while white people now did not create the racist systems and environments of the past, they benefit from them currently and thus have an obligation to remedy the ills caused by them, which create inequity. And this tenant is real hard to argue with. Even the most basic examination of pretty much any institution inside of our country reveals this to be a truth. If you look at capitalist structures and the racial identities of top leaders of most companies, if you look at educational structures and graduation rates or acceptance rates into universities, if you look at the criminal justice system and incarceration rates, uh, it would be incredibly hard to try to explain away, not that there aren't some people out there who do, but it's incredibly hard to try and explain away the massive discrepancies that exist in virtually every one of these systems that creates our society. Mm -hmm. And this is where a lot of people argue that the privilege that people have, white people in particular, is because of the lack of privileges that others have. And that's what creates the obligation to equalize the circumstances for all people. We have to repay society for the benefits that privileges have afforded us. And that's an interesting point that we'll get to later, because right now what we're talking about is teaching this theory in school as a theory, a way of describing the world. But if this theory is true, it certainly begs the question, okay, these inequities exist. What do we do about it? We'll talk about that in a second, but I think that a lot of the controversy not only stems from the definition of critical race theory itself, where do we teach that theory once it's defined, but then once we've taught it, what do we do with the conclusions that are drawn from it? I do think we'll address this later, but I think that the way that this can be handled in education is by using the privilege of who's in charge of education to bring in more people with diverse voices. And maybe that's an argument for keeping it in education too, because 
as we start a conversation about what could be done to rectify some of these inequitable systems, having people graduating from school with this in the forefront of their minds might result in them prioritizing certain fields or certain pursuits later on in life where they make it their goal to address some of these issues. Whereas if theories like this are not taught in school, nobody graduates, nobody comes out of the educational system with that as their focus. On the other side of the coin, when these sorts of systems are called out and people have all of this at the forefront of their thought, critics of CRT argue that it paints all white people with the same racist brush, that all white people are villains and all non-white people are victims. It's under that framework that critics call CRT racist against white people and hateful and are using those arguments to have it banned from public education, including at the university level. And a lot of this is justified by what we talked about earlier, that it does create senses of guilt potentially in little white boys and girls who are being told that they are in a way stealing from their fellow classmates, for example. And when people are walking out of an educational system with the mentality that they are somehow in the wrong, even though they didn't actively do anything, it creates in them a sense of futility, I would say, that I can't fix it. I was just born this way. And it becomes about their victimhood by the accusation of being called a racist, rather than the idea that their privilege confers some sort of obligation to actively fix racism. But here's here's one of the other criticisms against CRT being included in schools. As we've outlined already, it's a complicated theory that most of the time in its theoretical form is taught at law school, right? We're not suggesting, and I don't think anybody's really suggesting that public schools are teaching critical race theory as pure theory to sixth graders. But you take this incredibly complicated and nuanced theory that's based in experiential evidence and lived experiences of people, and then you ask teachers who might have just graduated themselves, have their own political leanings themselves, and you're asking them to take what lies on such a razor-thin edge of nuance in order to be presented fairly, uh, and asking them to do that might be a bit unfair and create problematic scenarios. Given the idea that we have this complicated subject and then we're tasking teachers across the country, if it were included in schools, to present it, I I promise you there's going to be some people out there who believe as a truth that all white people are inherently racist. And that is going to be taught to some kids. On the other side of things, you know, we're going to have some people out there that are saying, everybody's colorblind, race doesn't exist, identity doesn't affect individuals. If we can't teach it correctly, should we teach it at all? That's an interesting point. That reminds me of when I went with my grandmother to her classroom one summer, she was setting it up for the year and she shared that classroom with another teacher. And the other teacher had put on the wall a poster that said, wherever we stand, we stand with Israel. Mm. And teachers do bring their own personal ideologies and bias with them into the classroom. And if they are made to teach things that have to do with race relations in the United States, it'll be impossible for them to quell their own personal ideologies around it, which could either 
completely backfire and turn an entire generation of white children into self-loathing, depressed people who need a lot of Zoloft. Or it can radicalize people or otherwise make this entire discussion into something monstrous that doesn't actually address the issues that it's trying to. It can really spiral. Yeah, one of the, I mean, one of the motivations for this podcast is just the polarization that's happening in society and how hard it is to hear a fair or reasoned discussion about some of these controversial issues. And certainly teachers are not immune to that polarization, especially when it comes to a topic like this. So injecting this theory inside of schools, recognizing that people, including teachers, are becoming more and more polarizing, does that not just guarantee that now our education and what our children are learning in schools is reinforcing and accelerating the polarization that exists, which is most certainly not good for our society, political system, anything at large. However, what is happening as a result of a lot of this anti-CRT legislation around the country is that for fear of getting into any form of trouble because of how vague a lot of these laws were written, a lot of teachers are really afraid to teach anything to do with race whatsoever or bring in a specific book or have any sort of discussion because anything could really qualify as being part of CRT and therefore part of banned curriculum and put their jobs at risk. We've certainly heard cases of people losing their jobs over political issues in the past. So it's not like those fears are unfounded. But even if the question is simply, is the inclusion of X racial issue good or bad for our students? I think we can look back to what we started our episode with, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. Even if you're trying to do the best for your students, sometimes it's not clear. Do you provide for them a historical context from which they can better understand how systemic racism has taken root in the country and then how it affects things now and in the future? Or do you protect children from potentially traumatizing words or ideas? That's a really tough decision to make. And at a certain point, saying that maybe schools are not the right place for these conversations. These are conversations that should be left up to parents, or maybe these are conversations to be had at university at the earliest, or once kids have become adults, maybe that's the right way to go about it. Or maybe that's too late. And maybe by the time you wait that long, these kids' minds are already set and they've been turned into little racists and we had a chance to do something about it and didn't. Those are the only two options, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) They're either Atticus Finch or insert X Ted Cruz racist here. Ted Cruz. I was going to go for Leo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. Mm, That's a good movie. It is. Which does bring up controversies, though. The use of the N-word in the movie also, and Quentin Tarantino in general, versus historical context, painting African-American actor of that time period as the hero. Good movie, bad movie. Mm, Not sure. Lots of not sures today. That's an area where the controversy seems really overt, but I think a bigger issue when it comes to the type of things that are happening in classrooms is that teachers may be afraid of bringing anything into a classroom that could be perceived as racial, even if it wasn't, such as just talking about the Civil War or 
having a book written by a non-white author could be seen as a political act rather than just a comprehensive curriculum. And that's the danger of what the hyperbolic end of the discussion and the lack of clarity about CRT has developed. And that's interesting. So let's say we don't, as we said, CRT, super complicated, taught in law school in a lot of cases, not really pertinent for second graders. If we're not teaching CRT directly, what sort of influence could it still have on the educational system, right? How could it be used to inform curriculum choices? A lot of the advocates for a CRT-backed curriculum are looking for a system that is developed around questions of making sure that textbook authors are more representative of the student demographics, that decisions about what types of material are taught are in consideration of the types of people who are going to be learning these lessons and not just the quote-unquote white majority always being the overrepresented groups in a lot of these discussions and books and lesson plans. Mm-hmm. Or even some, when we, when we look at the history of America, for example, what time periods and what actions the country and the people of the country have taken do we brush over? And what do we give a good examination to? Things like slavery, atrocities against indigenous people, the civil rights movement, various amendments that have to do with rights being granted to minorities inside of this country, or maybe in more modern times, things like voter suppression, incarceration rates. CRT might help us make decisions about what to include or not in the curriculum. Right. We're already seeing a lot of textbooks that seem to be polishing the the past in a way that doesn't actually represent what the facts were, such as the South was farmed by immigrants from Africa and things like that in actual curriculum. And that's a very non-CRT type of textbook, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people like to put up statues of Civil War individuals, but don't like those individuals be talked about in the history books, if we're going to say what they actually did. But more importantly, it's not just the history that needs to be discussed as well. Textbook authors of all different subjects have to be representative of the students that are in those classes because experience underpins so much of what is actually taught via subtext, the context in which the people are writing, the types of examples they draw upon for word problems in a math in a math textbook, for example. Mm. All of those things are very important to comprehensive education. There's actually been research on IQ testing that showed some of the main differences in how well a student did in an IQ test was just the exposure to certain vocabulary terms based on their racial demographics. Some kids just didn't learn the words that white kids did and their IQ scores were quote unquote lower as a result of it because the test was written for white people. That's the type of thing that is requiring some dismantling with the idea of being a more inclusive and comprehensive curriculum that is actually addressing some of the lack of representation of different people and their experiences. That's interesting. I have seen studies on IQ tests that are administered internationally that just eliminate any words whatsoever and are literally using symbols and patterns. And you have to look at these things and figure out what they're asking and what the solution is without any words whatsoever for that, for that reason. It doesn't give any particular group who has a increased familiarity with any particular language or words within that language an advantage in the scoring. 
I still think IQ tests are probably bullshit, but that sounds like a better, better IQ test, even if it might still be a little bit bullshit. <laughs> I like them as long as I get a good score. Mm-hmm. So I hate most of them. <laughs> All right. So let's say we've gotten to the point now where we have a curriculum that includes a fairly representative distribution of authors, word problems in math, history lessons, etc. Again, what we what we talked about earlier in the episode is this highlights to students and teachers and everybody, it highlights the idea that there are systemic inequities inside of this nation, which begs the question, okay, if they exist, we need to do something about it. So once we've learned about critical race theory, that question has to be answered. What do we do to reduce the inequity that exists? I think a very important key word here is equity that has been brought forth in this entire discussion, and we haven't really explained why. Equality is a way of treating everybody the same regardless of circumstance. If anybody comes into a situation with less desirable circumstances, than their peers have, treating them equally does not do anything to remedy the inequalities that existed prior to that interaction. The equity part of this is that work is done to make up for those deficiencies that have been provided to people because they lacked the privilege that others have. That's all great in theory. I think we're wrestling with the question of how we actually implement that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that might be where critical race theory takes things to the next level. So let's just say, and this is uber generous, I understand that, but let's just say we've gotten to the point of a society where we do have equality now. And like you said in the beginning, in the 1970s, when critical race theory was developed, it was developed to answer the question of why did racism and inequity persist? after the civil rights movement. So again, let's say civil rights movement made everybody equal, which it didn't, but even if we give them that, if that's true, then none of these inequities should exist if equality equaled inequity. So critical race theory points out and takes things to the next level and says, well, even if everybody's treated equally now, there must have been some underlying systemic racism and discrimination that still exists that's causing for outcomes to be inequitable, even if we treat everybody the same from now on. Exactly. The idea that there is inequity is a very important concept to actually accept, especially in countries like the United States, because there is still the prevailing myth of meritocracy that everybody has an equal opportunity to work hard and earn what they want in life. We know that that's not true because of inequity, because nobody comes from the exact same starting point. There are people who've been given an extra hundred meters advantage on this proverbial racetrack. And equity deals with making up the difference between those people who are hundred meters behind everybody else so that everybody can get the same distance when the, when the gun goes off for the race in this elaborate metaphor I'm making up right now. And I think this is why critical race theory is controversial. This is when white people start to get real angry. Under equality, they would say, all right, well, everybody's allowed to own land now. Everybody's allowed to attend the same university. Everybody's allowed to do the same things. 
So that's fine. We don't have a problem with everybody being allowed to do the same things, but the outcomes are not the same, even though everybody's equal. So critical race theory says, all right, now we need to start implementing extra policies that start to potentially take away from one group or provide extra to another group in order to reach equity, which gives people the true opportunity to reach the same finish line. This is what makes people very fearful about losing a controlling interest in society. You talked about this at the beginning. We know that society is not represented very well when we're looking at Fortune 500 companies, when we're looking at who's in the Senate, things like that. When equity actually exists and all of these ills are actually addressed and people do actually have equal opportunity to achieve all of these things, then you're going to see white people lose That's that's the problem, I think, in a lot of cases. It's a zero-sum game as well. So take the Senate, for example. We have 100 senators in this country. If one senator becomes a particular race, that senator cannot be a different race. So as one group gains power inside of society, in a lot of instances, other groups lose power. And you're right. I think that there's a, there's a fear to that. And those policies or those efforts are galvanized by the teaching of the principles that would exist in something like critical race theory. And once people are able to achieve the same level of success and representation that white people currently have. It's great, by the way. I love it. Everybody should get some. I know you do because you're a man. You can't say that critical race theory. That's gender. That's subservient to race. Okay. You're white too. Shut up. <laughs> but once people become represented in places they currently are not represented, it also destroys a lot of myths that white people have created about themselves as being inherently superior. Whether or not they actively believe it, there is something they believe to be true about why they have achieved a level of success that other people have not if everybody's given the same chance. Mm-hmm. And actually addressing the issues that prevent people who are as smart and as hardworking and as determined as they are, but don't have the same set of advantages at the starting point, that's really going to shatter a lot of perceptions that white people have about whether or not they are actually earning their levels of success. Mm-hmm. And this is not to say, though, that this can't be taken too far. So there, again, all of these things, whether it's the theory or whether it's the implementation, or whether it's the education about the theory, all of these things operate on a spectrum. And I think that's what makes this critical race theory discussion challenging, is because there is a, a balance point somewhere in the middle where this is just true. But there is also a point where it can tip too far. So one, perhaps, at least in this particular news cycle we're in right now, the most relevant example that we've brought up, I think, is Katanji Brown-Jackson, a African-American woman on the Supreme Court. That's a good step. That goes, that goes a way towards shifting an institution inside of society to presumably re- reduce some of the systemic issues that exist there. It would be hard to suggest that we should not have 
representation in those types of institutions. But the same theory can also create policies or an incentive for policies like uh, affirmative action through a quota system, for example, which was decided by the Supreme Court not to be a good idea. All right, Josh, I think we're at the end of the episode. With everything that we've discussed today, all of our introspection and examination of critical race theory, where do you land on this subject? I guess what I just talked about here is a theme throughout the episode. It's about finding the balance, which I think is super difficult. As far as critical race theory itself, I think there's a point in it that is factual. And I definitely think that's something that people should be aware of. And not just as a theory, but also how that theory manifests itself functionally inside of society. But that being said, our country is just incapable of discussing race. And so to take a theory rooted in that and try to put it into our educational system, which is the other question that we tackled today, is real difficult. And potentially, that's proof that critical race theory is correct. The idea that we are just incapable of dealing with this topic might be the proof that systemically race is just built into every facet of our country, and we have really no way of dealing with that or escaping it at this point, which might be an argument for why we need even kids to get comfortable with these concepts. Learn at least the theory of them at a young age, start to recognize where they manifest themselves earlier potentially be motivated to do something about them as they move into adulthood and into the quote unquote real world. Hmm. (laughs) I think I've said this word a lot this episode, but I suppose my adjudication for this issue is unsure. How about you? More sure? Less sure? I do come to the subject with a little bit more of a personal involvement, not on the experience of what it is to be a non-white person in the United States, but I very nearly became an educator. And one of the things that was a required component of my training was to do a class on developmental psychology. Psychology is a field where there is no one truth either, that there are theories and they compete with each other. But developmental psychology is a basis upon which curriculum is built for the appropriate age levels of children to make sure that their actual state of being at each age is actually accommodated in curriculum and their emotional development is met um, with the, the appropriate tools and resources. So I think that an operationalized critical race theory would work a lot like developmental psychology does. You're not going to literally teach critical race theory to children, but you're going to take the types of concepts that critical race theory is espousing and build curriculum upon them so that all of the things that are part of critical race theory are imbued in the actual textbooks. So even if critical race theory does not have a singular truth to it, the things that it is trying to accomplish can actually be met in an educational system when we're looking at what is appropriate for a kindergartner, what is appropriate for a high school senior and everything in between. What I think is the biggest danger of not allowing critical race theory is based upon the misunderstanding of critical race theory that is dominating the conversation right now. 
And all of the laws that are limiting it in the educational system are creating a silencing effect that is not only eliminating it from active discourse, but all of the things that we're talking about with materials not even being introduced into classes for fear of being seen as a CRT lesson plan that's going to get a teacher fired. I think that educators should have a lot more freedom to introduce materials to classes, whether or not CRT is the basis of those materials that they bring in. Educators should operate with a lot more autonomy than we give them. That's probably a discussion for another episode. We'll talk about school boards at some point and uh, all of the Karens that are running for positions on them. I, I am just so afraid of the silencing effect, and that I think is the biggest immediate harm from the legislation that we've seen. And that is the first issue that needs to be resolved. And then all these great lesson plans that I hope can be developed will be developed. We talked one of the important things about critical race theory is that it recognizes the centrality of experiential knowledge. Uh, Obviously in this episode, Kelly and I's lived experiences are similar to each other's in some ways. (laughs) Um, And we do I think recognize just as a podcast that having a community voice is important, especially on topics like this, where there are probably different experiences than what Kelly and I have dealt with. So we we do, I know we say it every episode, and I know every podcast says it every episode, but we mean it. If people do want to talk to us about uh, issues that we cover or share their experiences or their thoughts on it, we listen and you can do that as usual. Uh, on Twitter or Facebook at IndubitablyPod or email us at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. But I think on a topic like this, it might be even more useful for us to get some different opinions uh, and hear from more folks, expand the amount of experiential knowledge that goes into the conversation that we're trying to have about this particular topic. So please feel free to reach out and contribute. I would just love it if everybody wrote in and said, Josh is wrong and Kelly is right about everything. We didn't even argue on this episode. I know. I just want to hear that no matter what the episode's about. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, maybe sometime if you're right, you'll hear it. Hmm. Another way that you can interact with us, regardless of whether you think that I win most of the debates or you're wrong, is you can rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. I know it's obnoxious when people ask for these things, but we haven't done it in a while. So just throwing it out there. It does help a lot. We do appreciate it. And to close the book, so to speak, on this discussion of CRT, maybe one day in the future, the following quote also from To Kill a Mockingbird might one day be true. But there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller, the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, and the ignorant man, the equal of any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest JP court in the land or this honorable court which you serve. Our courts have their faults as does any human institution, but in this country, our courts are the great levelers and in our courts, all men are created equal.